0: We're going to continue in worship by doing something we hadn't done in a while, and that is reciting what we believe through the Apostles' Creed. Words should be on the screen for you, and I will say them along. Just follow along with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. pledge of what the, really the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And we're getting into part of the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about oaths. And I'm like, it's not an oath, but I thought it'd be appropriate to pledge what we believe in the face of that. Um, and just to remind ourselves and call to our heart what it is we really do believe. You know, the Apostles' Creed originally was what they would quote at their baptism when they first professed faith in the early church. So they would testify to the Apostles' Creed and then be baptized or vice versa, one of those. But that would be what they would swear to as they join the church, join the faith, profess their faith in Christ. And as always, reading together is important because it forces you to actually listen. And if you were like running ahead of me, behind me, trying to figure it out, like when we read corporately, we read together and we're forced to listen to one another and read together. So we do things like that occasionally from time to time in church. Uh, If you're just joining us, we have been in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, some light part of the Bible, where Jesus preaches a sermon for several chapters in the book of Matthew. And I'm just going to warn you right now, we're going to go through about 20 or so verses, and I probably could have done a sermon on like each four or five. So this is going to be one of those sermons that just kind of does this, you know. So just hang on, bear with me. But in case you thought Jesus was teaching an easy thing to do, Just in case you thought it was easy to follow Jesus, see if you could find yourself doing what I'm about to, uh, put yourself in this situation I'm about to read, all right? After a horrific school shooting in Broward County, Florida, on February 14th of 2018, several prayer vigils were held in the community. The vigil on Thursday evening ended with a request for everyone to write one specific act of good that they would perform in the coming days and weeks as a way to channel the raw emotions of the night into something positive. Amazingly, prayers were read for Nicholas Cruz, the murderer, and his extended family as well. The prayer sounded something like this. We ask that you would intervene in his disturbed mind and show him hope that can only be found in you, one speaker asked, holding back tears. We pray for your miraculous work to be evident in him and in spite of him. Can you imagine praying for a gunman in that kind of way? That is not easy. That is not light, follow Jesus, and your life will be okay. That is the deep personal work. When Jesus gets into loving your enemies, that's what he's talking about. And so we're going to dig into a passage like that because Here's what, it's several different things that he talks about really fast over several verses that are not easy and light topics. If you were here for a pleasant, joyful sermon, I'm so sorry, except even in the tough stuff, even in the difficult passages, God's grace and love can be found. Even in an incident as horrible as that, God's love can be displayed. That doesn't make those things okay. It just means he's called his kingdom citizens to display his love in every single set of circumstances. In James, he tells us to consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face hardship and trial. Okay. In this sermon, he is recentering his followers on the original intent of his law, and so he's taking things that we're about to get into. Divorce, loving your enemy, retaliation, this is where the sermon is headed next. That, but they're not so much, he's not so much setting up new rules as he is trying to help them under the, understand the intent of what it means to be a kingdom citizen, to be called a child of God, to be called a follower of Jesus means a heart that has expanded generosity and love for others, even those who persecute or hate you or treat you wrong. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 31. And we'll go from there. We'll, we'll do it phrase passage by passage here. Concerning divorce, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him get her, give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Wow, okay, right? Whoa, people get divorced for lots of things, don't they? Especially now, this is Jesus' day, but they were already divorcing for all kinds of different reasons in Jesus' day. In fact, he's, he, you know, I, I said this last week, but anytime he's teaching these and reframing these, he says things like, you've heard it said, or you have been taught, but now I tell you this. And so he launches into divorce and he says, You've heard it said, just give her a letter of divorce. But I tell you, unless it's under these circumstances, if they remarry, they're committing adultery. So he's raising the game. He's raising the bar. He's demonstrating a true desire for marriage to last the way it was meant to last. It was meant to be forever, right? It was meant to be a lifelong commitment, a lifelong pledge, a covenant between you, your spouse, and God to last forever. And a little bit like today, by Mo, by, by, between Moses and Jesus' day, they had taken it to where you just give them a letter and it can be for anything. And when I say anything, there are, there are historical documents from early church days of a man divorcing his wife because she prepared a bad meal. <laughs> Ooh, I wouldn't would anybody still be married? I don't know. But they, little. A bad meal, you're out of here. Um, one documents somebody prettier came along. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Talk about making you insecure. Wait, you can divorce somebody because they're cuter? You know, like grass is greener excuse? In other words, Moses, had, Moses, had, Moses allowed for divorce in the Old Testament. He said, you must do it this way, provide this legal document, this legal reason. But there was a caveat. Moses didn't do it because he thought divorce was an okay thing or a good idea or even a thing to be, or that marriage was meant to be taken lightly. He did it as a concession because people of God's hearts were so hard they were divorcing anyway. In other words, he kind of like, all right, We're just going to, it's not supposed to happen, but at least do it this way. And that's kind of how we treat marriage and divorce now, right? Uh, Yeah, I'm just, I'm out of love with you now. We're going to get divorced. I mean, it has happened, right? And so it's like, yeah, I know I said death do us part and you're not dead, but we're out of here. You know what I mean? And so we've taken it and as long as I give them the legal document, And we go to court, and we're going to be divorced. Everything will be all right. And Jesus goes, and we could, like I said, we could do a whole sermon on these topics, but he says, except in the case of infidelity, they're committing adultery if they remarry. That's a harsh standard. There's no doubt. But Mark 10, 5, when Jesus is talking about this, he says, because your hearts were hard, that Moses wrote that law. They would justify it for anything. To break the commitment is to be unfaithful, by the way. It's not, not bad meals. Sorry, you don't get a pass if the food's bad. That's not how it works. Divorce was never God's intent for relationships. Does it happen? Of course. Is there fault on both sides a lot of times? Yep. Is there a complete abandonment sometimes and it's no fault of one person over the other? Of course. Is that the way it was meant to be? No. Right? Marriage is supposed to be a commitment, a covenant, a thing that never ends, but sometimes it does. Why? Because last time I checked, I'm not perfect. And anytime you get two people who still aren't perfect living together forever, sometimes that's not how it plays out. Does that mean God hates you because you did? Of course not. Does that mean you're not a Christian if you do? Of course not. Does that mean that's what God wanted for you in your life? Of course not. He would not want you to have pain and suffering that goes through all the combat that comes from a broken marriage, let alone what happens with kids. That's not his plan. Your spouse abandons you for somebody who's cuter, That's not his plan. That's called sin. I'm just out of here. I just want to be single again. That's sin. That's not following through the very commitment that you made. But kingdom citizens should be able to keep the commitments that we make. Now, like I said, we're not doing the whole sermon on divorce today, so I can get into what considers being unfaithful. Maybe we'll save that, put a pin in that one, and come back. But there's... all but. Marriage is meant to last. We're meant to live into it. But what we testify in front of God. We will, until death do us part, love, honor, cherish the person that we don't like very much right now. You know what I mean? Like, I love you. I've said this to my wife. She's here. I love you. I just don't like you very much right now. <laughs> That's okay. My commitment's there. My love is there. It doesn't change because of circumstances. But we tick each other off sometimes. But if you think your marriage is built on how you feel about a person in a moment, it will not last. The commitment under this passage that he's talking about is what keeps it together when it is not so great and awesome. Because the love commitment and the pledge before God and the pledge to your spouse stays in place even when it's a mess. And we'll get into other stuff on another day. But the intent is for kingdom citizens, and that's why we're spinning the Sermon on the Mount, so to speak, if I belong to God and I'm a child of God, my goal is love. My goal is sacrificial love. If you've ever been impacted by divorce, there's this fun statistic that floats around that says half of all marriages end in divorce. You ever heard that one? If you dig into that one, it's half of all marriages. So if you took me... And Ross Geller from Friends, 75% of all marriages end in divorce. You follow me? The person who's been divorced four and five times is in the same study with the person who's been married for 40 years. So you take a couple of those people that are on their third and fourth marriage and the person who's been married to their sweetheart since they were 18, then you can come up with 70 80% of all marriages end in divorce. When you go dig into that stat a little more first marriages, it's not half. Does that make sense? So I'm trying to say that in the context of a divorce thing. It's just tough to say marriage does work. It is something that can be grace and God filled. Just don't let the stats fool you. Oh, it's a 50-50 shot. If i will be with them forever, that's not true. That's a sidebar. 33 through 37, he raises the stakes again. I thought you were going to go quickly through some of this stuff. It was also said... That's divorce. Again, you've heard it said to those in ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is this footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. At least not by swearing. I guess you can go to Walmart. Let your word be yes. Let your yes be yes or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Oaths, pledges, swearing. I swear to God, I'm going to do it. I swear on my mama's life, whatever, you know. Pledges, oaths, he's forbidding them. Now, apparently, there was an ancient practice where if I swear by this, then I must really mean what I say. Jesus is saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why? Because kingdom citizens should be so filled with love and trust and faithfulness, they shouldn't have to swear by anything. Their yes should just be yes. If you say you're bringing food to the fellowship lunch, it better be here. (laughs) It's just yes. You don't have to go, I swear if I don't bring it, I'll pay. No, just bring it. Using that as an example because we have lunch today. But you get what I'm saying. If we're virtuous followers of God, then our word should be trusted at its face value. And the reason he forbids oaths is because A, if you swear to God, you can't make God do anything. Anybody? I swear to God, do that. It doesn't work. I can't swear by heaven and earth, I didn't make it. God made it. Hairs on your head, you have no control over that. (laughs) Right? Sometimes they disappear in old age. This is how it rolls. You can't control those things. So the oaths in this passage, he's talking about people making promises or swearing by things they really don't own and have no say over anyway. So it's an empty promise. It's deceit. And I think we've talked about it before, but why does somebody make one of those pledges? Because they're not even sure they can keep it themselves. Honestly, I swear (laughs) because they failed before. I swear I'll do it this time. Yeah, right. I swear. Or they're trying to get, they're trying to manipulate you into believing they really do mean it this time. And you've got that friend. I know I owe you 20 bucks. I will pay you back this time. I promise. (laughs) You know that person, right? No, 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 really. I know I owe you like $400 going back a couple of years, but I really will pay you the 20 bucks back this time. I swear to God. That's what he's talking about. You shouldn't have to do that because your integrity should be: you paid it back when you borrowed it, or when you said you would borrow it, because of who you belong to, not because you're going to go to hell if you break make an oath. But because if you say you will, you should, because that's what kingdom citizens do. They can be trusted. They can be trusted in their marriage relationships. They can be trusted in their friendships, or in their promises, or in their commitments because that's what somebody who has the heart of God would do. There's, our, speech, our speech should be so upright that they just know that if we say so, it's going to happen. Then it gets even tougher. Look at 38 to 42. You have heard it said, there's our tip off. He's about to change something, right? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not, re- do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give them your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Yikes. Anybody been burned by any of those circumstances before? Well, I, I, I want to give the guy money on the corner, but I know he's just going to use it for something. I don't hear the caveat in there. Um, what else? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's the Old Testament teaching. If they murder, you kill them. If they steal, you do this. If you, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You take from them what they took from you. Sounds like an equitable thing. And in some ways, with it being in the Mosaic law, what it was meant to do is prevent over-retaliation. They stole my lunch, I killed them. (laughs) You don't don't understand what I'm saying? The whole purpose of the original code was to prevent excessive retaliation for something that had happened, for a way that they'd been wronged. And Jesus comes along and says, no, no, no. You're not even supposed to meet what they did to you. In fact, you're supposed to go the extra mile and give, it back to give them more than they asked for. By the way, that phrase, go the extra mile, comes from this passage. You ever heard that, that Turner phrase before? It comes from this passage. It was a Roman practice, Roman empire. They're parading the streets of Jerusalem. They've got their subjects who are now the Jewish people. They could come up to you and have you carry something a mile by law. You know, you're going about your day in the marketplace. They'd be like, I need to go to this city. You have to carry this armor, this thing, this cloak, whatever it is, for a mile. And you were required to by Roman law to do so. You had no choice. Or they just, you know. What does Jesus say about that? Because I'm sure the Jewish people thought that was unfair. Hey, by the way, you got to take me to Jackson this afternoon. You have no moral choice but to get in the car and drive me there. That would stink, right? Cut your afternoon out. Jesus goes, take them to the coast. He says, don't go just one mile, go two. Can you imagine being the Roman soldier who required you to go a mile and you don't stop walking at one mile and keep going? What would that do with the Roman soldier? Wait, wait, you're done. That's okay. Let's go. What does that testify to? What does that say about who you are? This is not just about not taking too much. He's not saying, he's not just saying that. He's saying, don't give too little. It's not limit what you're, what you're willing to give up. Okay, I'm willing to give this much. He's saying, no, 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 that's the wrong attitude. The attitude is being afraid of giving too little. Not taking too much. Because he wants his kingdom citizens to be generous. This is not about being a doormat. This is about an heart attitude that wants to love people who have even wronged us and done us wrong. Because he's going in, he's talking about retaliation here. Eye for an eye. I'm going to get you because you got me. No. It's not doormat attitude. It's they wronged me. I'm going to go the extra mile to demonstrate God's love to them. Remember I told you following Jesus. Piece of cake. Easy, right? No problem. You want that? I'll give you that and this. That's weird. Yeah, it is. It's unusual. It stands out. It testifies to who you belong to. School shooting in Florida, this guy took somebody's life. Let's pray for him. Let's ask God to help him flourish, to be changed, to be transformed. The intent of this passage is to end the circle of violence. You do that, I'm going to do this. You do that, I'm going to do this. If I go the extra measure or turn the other cheek, what have I done? I've de-escalated the situation. I've been, remember, this comes after the Beatitudes, right? This is the same sermon. Blessed are the peacemakers. If you're not fighting the lawsuit, in fact, giving some extra, you're bringing peace. If you're not retaliating eye for eye, you're bringing mercy and justice and peace. To people who are seeking to take from you. The goal is an expanded benevolence toward others rather than justifying your own anger and what you do with it. Last week we talked about anger and lust. You know, this is Sermon on the Mount, this is some light teaching. You know, last week we talked about anger. Paul says, in your anger, don't sin. And so what we do sometimes is like, oh, they did it to me, so I'm justified to do it to them and we hang on to that, and we justify our immoral behavior in response, they they wronged me. I can wrong them back. I'm justified in doing that. Jesus says that's not the way to go about it. The way to go about it is to be generous and merciful and loving in that context, not vengeful and hateful. What will be the loving thing to do in those set of circumstances? Go the extra mile, figure of speech. You've heard that before. Kingdom citizens are to have an expanded amount of love in their life, even for their enemies. You've heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, there's a nice little standard right there at the end of that little passage. Be perfect, right? Love, he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor. Neighbor would be, especially in the Jewish context, to be God's people, the people of Israel. Gentiles we hate, Jewish people we love. That would be the teaching. Love your neighbor. Jesus says, everybody does that. It's easy to love people who love you back. It's easy to love your roommate. It's easy to love your spouse. It's easy to love your family. Duh. Love the person who hurts or oppresses you. Pray for them. Seek their flourishing. What can you do to make them, invite them into the kingdom and make them more Christ-like? That's your responsibility as a kingdom citizen, not revenge and certainly not hate. See, these old laws that he's rewriting, he's not getting rid of them. He's not doing away with them. He's bringing us back to what they originally intended because here's what love your neighbor implicitly tells us in our head. I'm supposed to love church people, but non-church people, not so much. They're not like me. They don't believe like me. Again, we kind of get this justification in our head. It's like, it's okay to hang out with and only love Christians or only love my family or only love my best friend or my spouse or whoever. But these people that I don't know, don't understand, I get a pass. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. You're supposed to love them too, even more so. Everybody loves the people that loves them. You're supposed to go, it's again, it's expanded generosity of heart to go beyond what anybody else does. He even throws in there. The Gentiles do that. The Gentiles love their own. What makes you different? Non-Christian folks can be loving. They can be generous. They certainly are. I would never dispute that. Big deal. Are you more loving and more generous and more patient and more merciful than they are? People who don't even know God. They're not trying to follow God. They're just doing their thing. Does your righteousness exceed theirs? If they never go to church and they're more Christian than you, what does that say? Right? A kingdom citizen is supposed to be so generous and so loving, not passive doormat, but so extravagantly over-the-top loving of anybody and everybody that God is glorified in heaven, not us. Why would you do that? Because God wants me to. They sued you for $10,000. Why would you give them 20? Because God told me to. That's weird, I know. But it's the loving thing to do. That's a weird example. But you get what I'm saying, right? My goal is to love you even though you're the one attacking me. Because what does that do? That just... That makes them more, honestly, that makes your enemy more mad. (laughs) If you're generous and kind with them, they're like, you're supposed to get mad back. That's what you're supposed to do. And when you don't do that, it's weird. But it testifies to something. You're not like them. Why? And the answer to that question becomes a sharing of the gospel. In this passage, revenge is forbidden. He asks, because he says God has control of all that. He says, pray for them, go the second mile, Don't take too much. It's not don't take too much. Make sure you're not giving too little. It's a different approach to everything. It's not watching out for your stuff. It's not watching out only for your loved ones. It is how generous with my life can I be? That's an orientation that's beyond what the world understands. In fact, it's the opposite of what the world teaches us to do. But loving our enemies... Emulates God's love. He says, "Be perfect." Anybody perfect? I didn't raise my hand, by the way. I was just John. Yep, I got it covered. <laughs> First John, one something. Anyone who says they have not, don't have sin, fools themselves. Okay. Um, anybody, <laughs> right? But God's love, love for enemies is to emulate God's love, because what does Scripture? Say about us before we know God. If we're not a Christian, we're God's enemy. You ever thought about that? That's why Colossians says, be reconciled to God. What does the word "reconciled" mean? To be at peace, to be square, to be justified, to be settled with God. If we're at odds with God, we're His enemy. But Christ was faithful that while we were still dead in our sins, He died for us. He demonstrated the ultimate act of love for His enemies, not His friends. People who did not know Him, people who did not love Him is who He died for so that they could know and love Him. And so when we demonstrate love to people who give us a hard time, people we we can't stand very much right now, when we go out of our way to love them, we're emulating God's love in doing so. That's what he's saying. In fact, that's what he's saying when concerning divorce or oaths or, or revenge or loving your enemy. Love your spouse beyond measure to prevent that. Have such integrity, you don't need an oath in here. You know you're going to keep it if it's all possible. You're going to keep your pledge to your spouse. You're going to keep the promise you make to your friends beyond anything you can do. That's your focus. Somebody comes at you, you're not going to retaliate because God doesn't want you to deal with it that way. He wants you to be loving it. Do you see what, it's four different examples, right? But it's the same motif. What does he want his kingdom citizens to do? To love God and to love others, including our enemies. In the same way that he loved us. I did not consider, Jesus did not consider equality something to be grasped, but instead became one of us faithful in obedience even to death on a cross for people who said He's not for real. He doesn't know better. I know better than God. For people who turned their backs on God, for people who did not want to follow God, that's who He was hanging on the cross for so that they could know God and be kingdom citizens. If you're, we have, a, I mentioned this a couple weeks, and there's a, if you missed them coming in or if you had not been here or whatever, we have journals out front in the, as you come in the door of the lobby. And it's the Gospel of Matthew with some space to write your prayers and your thoughts. And so each Sunday as we, as we talk through this, I've given you something to write and think about in the coming week. And so if you don't have one yet, please take one. If we run out, let me know. I will get more. But here's your journal thought for the week. Who am I going to come in contact this with, with this week that I need to demonstrate love to that I haven't before? Who's my enemy this week that I need to demonstrate God's love to? Maybe they're not their enemy, but maybe we're just not getting along right now and I need to go out of the way and go the second mile. Let's pray. Gracious God, let our yes be yes and our no. We know. Let our love for others be so generous and unlimited that they see you and not us. Let our hearts be so full of mercy and peace that we look just like you to everybody else. God, we confess that that is a tough prayer this morning. But we also know that it's your heart desire. For your kingdom citizens. In Christ's name, amen.